press conference because I, it has been revealed to me what's going to happen in the nations of the Middle East for the next 200 years. How many people do you think would show up to that press conference? Probably, if it was a slow news day, maybe the National Enquirer, maybe a few other tabloids, but it would be largely ignored. Well, that is some of what happened in Daniel chapter 11, so to speak, that God gave an amazing Godward ability to foresee deep into the future with great specificity of exactly what would happen, who would lead nations, what nations would fall. And the, the detail is so thrilling that those who doubt the sovereignty of God and God's ability to foresee the future have simply labeled these prophecies as an impossibility because they're too accurate. They reveal that God might know intricate details about tomorrow. Now, those of us who believe in God's omniscience, this is nothing for God to do, but uh, it has been the subject of some theological controversy through the years because Daniel does for us a great gift. He stands at the vantage point of the Lord, and we get to now look back and see just how accurate and right our God was. Well, last week I left you with Daniel battling, hearing the story of an, an unnamed angel that was doing battle with an evil force. And then he comes in answer to prayer to Daniel. And Daniel, of course, is blown away at this vision. And Daniel is one that shouldn't be easily blown away had many great revelations and powerful experiences with God through the years, but here at, in his mid-80s sees one final heavenly vision, and he is just beside himself with the majesty of God's revelation to him. And, and last week we sort of prepped ourselves for the vision, and here we find ourselves this week with the vision being revealed. And what we're going to see today are some lessons from God's vantage point. Don't you wish sometimes that you had the vantage point of God? We wonder about tomorrow and we wonder if we're going to have what it takes and where we'll be and what we'll do. But the living God has the incredible vantage point to see back in time and to see ahead of time. And so today we get to learn lessons from his point of view. I'm going to first of all read uh, verses 2 and 3 of Daniel chapter 11, where you'll sort of get the, the sense of how much of the story goes. It says this, Now then, I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he's gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Now, this is the angel of the Lord speaking to Daniel and giving him a specific breakdown of how the future will look. Now, the first thing we're, we're going to note as we look into this passage today about lessons from God's vantage point is, number one, we must learn to trust God's hands-on approach. Sometimes we don't like it when someone is overly involved in our life. We're like, hey, could you just sort of give me some space, give me some distance? But the living God is a very hands-on God. He's hands-on in our life. He's also very much in control 
of the way that the world moves. And A, under number one on your outline, uh, looking back at God's control brings a sense of hope. Sometimes we get easily discouraged about our choices. Do the decisions I make really matter? Well, instead of being overcome with a sense of hopelessness, when we see God's specific sovereignty in these passages and others, it should fill us with hope that, yes, the choices we make are real, the consequences are real, but there is a loving, wise, sovereign God that has not let his hand off the mantle of our life. Now, a quick breakdown of how this passage looks is that uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11 basically is a history of Persia, a prophecy of what will happen in Persia once the Babylonian kingdom is down. And there are several great kings described in verse 2. The last one, Xerxes, is actually the king that's not named here, but if you had an ancient Middle Eastern history book in one hand and Daniel 11 in the other, you'd be amazed at how specific the predictions that Daniel made and the history books were. Uh, the, but the last king mentioned is one that is referred to as Xerxes or, or Azazerus, who is the king mentioned in the book of Esther. If you've uh, gotten a chance to read the book of Esther, it describes the, the king mentioned in the last part of verse 2. And then verses 3 and 4 are a history of ancient Greece. We just read verse 3 a moment ago, and the great king mentioned there in verse 3 is a reference to Alexander the Great, where we have talked about before in reference to chapter 7. Now, in verses 5 through about 20 of Daniel chapter 11, it describes the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And that's basically a name for whatever king happened to be in leadership at the time in the divided kingdom of Greece. Basically, in modern-day Syria, if you can picture the world news map for a moment, here's Israel in the middle, and here's modern-day Syria. That would be a reference to the king of the north. And then right underneath it, and basically what would be modern-day Egypt, is a reference to the king of the south. And sandwiched between the divided kingdom of Greece after the death of Alexander the Great is little old Israel, God's chosen people that was tormented during this time. And the Lord is letting Daniel know that hard times await your people. And then around verse 21, we meet someone we, we met in chapter 8. If you remember the prophecy in Daniel 8, it was reference to Antiochus Epiphanes that was sort of a prototype of what we refer to as the Antichrist, one that was an arch enemy of Israel and led an awful revolt and rebellion against God's chosen people in ancient Israel. And, and basically around verse 35, we'll get to next week the contrast between Antiochus Epiphany. I know this is a bit on the uh, detailed and weighty side, but we get to basically a future reference to someone who has not come, and that is a reference to the literal Antichrist, a person who is yet to come in the future, is what Daniel describes beginning in verse 36. And some of you might say, well, all this prophecy about the future, it, it's a little bit frightening. Well, actually, when you know God and you placed your hope in Him and see how He knows what's going on and how detailed He is about future events, it should fill us with great hope. B, also under number one, it, the, about trusting God's hands-on approach, it reminds us that the God of the Bible is the one true 
God. It's not a matter of us saying that our God is better than your God or like my dad could beat up your dad. It's, it's a matter of simply looking at the facts and realizing that God who could predict these specific things they can only come to true if, there was, if the God of the Bible is behind them, leading to their outcome. And as you look at the history books, these events came to pass, and it goes to show and to point that there is a one true God, and it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Scripture tells us in places like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, that says, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above, and there is no other. These amazing prophecies point to the truth that there is no other. Now, one of the lessons that looking back into the history of kings and leaders does for us is it reminds us of how not to act. And I'm going to go through a few of the specific actions of some of these leaders, and we're going to point out lessons for us in our day that we should learn to avoid. And then we'll look at some uh, aspects of the people of God that we are to emulate. Now, first of all, number two on your outline this morning about lessons from God's vantage point is this. Avoid the foolish actions of man. And the first one is a reference to Alexander Great, and that's in ver- Alexander the Great, and that's in verse three. And A on your outline is simply this: moral indifference. Did you note what it said about in verse three? Then a mighty king, a reference to Alexander the Great, will appear, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. To do as he pleases is essentially reminiscent of the book of Judges. There was a a dark period in the history of Israel where there was no king in place. And the scripture says in, in Judges that every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, there was no more referring to the law of the Lord, to the word of God that God had given his people through Moses. It was basically whatever you wanted to do, you did it. And if it felt right, then that was fine because you get to determine that which is right and that which is wrong. And in our day, in our society, there is a growing sense of moral indifference. And even those of us who claim to believe that there is a literal right and wrong, sometimes we get so tired of doing what is right and watching the world seemingly have a great time with the glee of to the temporary pleasure of sin, we sometimes let down our guard and begin to have a similar moral indifference. One of the other things we did in Africa a few weeks ago is that my wife got to lead a conference for women. She led a, a group of pastors' wives one day and then just a women's conference uh, another day. And at the end of the conference, they, the hosts asked if there were any questions from the group of ladies to my wife. Now, if you know something about ancient Africa uh, is that polygamy was the law of the land, so to speak. It was the custom of most everyone. And in some of the outer areas, uh, it's still very popular for a man to have many wives. And, but in the village where Susie was uh, conducting the seminar, it, it is though they combined their culture with Western culture. Now, in our culture, what is unfortunately waning is the institution of marriage. That there is a, 
uh, tremendous percentage of children that are born into relationships that are not sealed with the binding permanent covenant of marriage. And, and so she had, it was a mixture of a disregard for marriage, yet with the polygamy um, mindset as well. And so there would be some questions. Yes, I'd like to know something. Um, one lady asked her, ma'am, listen, I've been with this man for several years, and we have two or three kids together. And he's also has been with several other ladies that he has kids with. And I go to church with some of the other ladies that he is with and having children with. And I'm just not sure what to do. He's not married to any of us. And we're thinking about maybe getting, he said we might get married one day. We're just, I'm just not sure. What do you think I should do? And Mrs. Lee kind of said, do you, I, I know her so well. I was back there during that question. And she's kind of like, do you have any easier questions? <laughs> She didn't exactly know how to relate to that one, but basically the men were making up their own rules of morality. And in our day, you, there is an increasing sense that there is no standard of truth. Truth is what you make it out to be. Uh, don't get so uptight about the morality that you were taught by your forefathers and that is claimed to be in this matter of fact the, the idea of moral outrage has absolutely changed uh, what moral outrage used to be was breaking the law of the word of god now what moral outrage is is an unwillingness to believe in the absolute legitimacy of everyone else's claims for truth if you dare to say that someone's lifestyle is against what God has intended, that's the moral outrage. The outrage used to be breaking God's commandments. Now it's suggesting that anyone else is outside of it. And brothers and sisters, there is a right and there is a wrong. And it's not defined by our whims. It's not defined by our culture. <laughs> There is a moral barometer inside all of us that God placed called a conscience that we seem to have a great ability to suppress and beat down. But even if there weren't an inner sense of right and wrong, God has given us a record of his revelation and the word of God that determines truth. And so we don't have the right to do what Alexander the Great did and say, you know what, I'm just going to do as I please because right and truth are determined by me, by my choice. Now we must have love and compassion and mercy amidst a great clinging to truth, but we must avoid the way our culture's going of moral indifference. B, on your outline, another foolish action of man that we see in this passage involves quarreling. I was noting some of the battling between the king of the south and north, it gets quite ugly. Look at verse 11. Then the king of the south this would be the Egyptian king, will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, he'll advance with a huge army fully equipped. That is the plight of... Those that went against the people of God, they were back and forth quarreling with one another. Now, 
we must learn to avoid that tendency toward quarreling. I, I would say that in terms of human relationships, having a different perspective is not just natural, it's a normal part of our life. We are different, we're wired differently, we think differently, we have different personalities, and therefore we must learn to resolve differences effectively. It's not wrong to have those bump ends to each other, but we must learn to ha handle them with humility, grace, and with tenderness especially. Yet, when we refuse to do that, when we have conflict that is fueled by pride, then we have quarreling. Uh, Proverbs chapter 13 verse 10 says, pride only brings quarreling, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. If you find yourself to be a person that's always stirring something up, always in the middle of some kind of conflict or controversy or making someone else upset or bothering someone, I would ask the Lord, is there a pride problem in your heart? Because the scripture says pride only brings quarrels but the humble person is not touchy or not defensive or not unsettled when pursuing a relationship but pride is something that brings quarrels and you know also reads in proverbs chapter 15 verse 18 it says a patient man calms a quarrel and one of the villages we stayed in when we were in sierra leone it was interesting, a business uh, in this one place that was referred to as the River 2 was you paid someone what, what amounts to about 17 or 18 U.S. cents, about 17 cents, to get in a boat and take you about 40 yards at the most to an, another island. Uh, some people lived in this village, but they didn't want to swim across in their clothes, or, and maybe the tide, many of them didn't know how to swim, the tide would go out to the ocean, and so there was a man there in a boat, you paid him uh, a, a small amount of money, and you'd come across to the other side. Well, one day when we were uh, on the beach getting ready to go to dinner, there was a big heated discussion. A couple of ladies had gotten off the boat, and the, the man who uh, drove them or boated them over, rode them over, was yelling at them. And they were not having any of it. They were yelling back. And now it was all of a sudden you felt like you were at the school ground when someone's about to yell, fight, 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 fight. And they're going back and forth. And there was two pastors that were with us. And I heard the, the, it was a senior pastor and his assistant. I heard the senior pastor yell to his assistant, go help them. Uh, <laughs> It would be like me asking Pastor R, I don't feel like cutting up that fight. Will you go break up that fight type thing? And anyway, the associate pastor went over there, got between the women and the man, and started, what's going on? What's going on? What, blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden, a few minutes later, I saw the women walk away. And I said, I, I asked the pastor, what's going on? I said, well, they're getting into a fight because they agreed that he they would pay 2000 of the, uh, the uh, you know, 34 cents, but they only wanted to pay 17 cents. And uh, they basically, and he said, no, you agreed, and back and forth and back and forth they went. And it was like, wow, super pastor resolved the conflict. I guess he beat out 17 more cents out of the lady, and the, the conflict seemed to be over. But you know, it's interesting to note how natural quarreling is for many of us. 
It's simply the pattern we get into. It's common for us to build that into our homes, into our offices, into our churches, for us to to be on edge, for always be willing to have a, a sense of quarreling. It's part of the history of mankind, but we need to stop it as believers in Christ and say, I'm going to do two things to be free from quarreling. I'm going to ask God to deal with my pride problem, and I'm going to ask him to help me be a patient man that calms a quarrel. Another trait we see uh, that we must avoid the foolish actions of man involves deceit. As Antiochus Epiphanes is described in verse 23, note what it says. After coming to agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and, uh, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. We note in the, in the scriptures that Antiochus Epiphanes contained no, was not, didn't, wasn't an heir to the throne. He had no right to the throne in Greece, but he took it anyway, and he won it through deceit. And as he rose to power through deception, um, he essentially turned the hearts of everyone toward him through lying, through manipulation, and that's clearly something in Scripture we must learn to avoid. Uh, The the Bible tells us that a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Sometimes there's this temporary advantage we feel like we've mastered through deceit, but it lasts only a moment. D, under number two, another foolish action of man to avoid involves misusing money. In verse 24, when the, richer, when the richest province feels secure, he will invade them and would achieve what neither his fathers or his forefathers did. He'll distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He'll plot to overthrow the, the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. One of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes would do is go into villages and loot them, steal their money, and then he would give it to people in the other villages that would become his allies. And so he was a thief, and then he was the conniver. He wanted to act like he was Robin Hood, but there was a, a, a conniving to it. It was all about using money that wasn't his to advance his name. And I think about any resources God has entrusted to us, whether they be many or whether they be few, we've got to manage them in a God-honoring way. In, in 17.6 of the book of Proverbs, the scripture says, What use is money in the hands of a fool, since he has no desire to get wisdom? And whatever God entrusts us with, we must say, Lord, help me use your resources with your wisdom. By the way, I would, involve the, I, I would encourage you to continue in your faithfulness in giving to the Lord. It's one of the best ways <clears throat> that God uses to drain us of our tendency toward greed, and it shows our trust and our confidence in Him that He is the one that has provided for us. And so we give not out of some rote sense of legalism to buy curry favor with God, but we do it as an act of worship that demonstrates our trust in who he is. And so don't let the, oftentimes I've noticed in central Florida, it seems like Mickey and Minnie Mouse get the church's tithes during the summer. So continue giving faithfully uh, regardless of what time of year it is. One other action to avoid in, uh, on number two on your outline, that is E, is simply this, miss placed anger something interesting about Antiochus Epiphanes is 
There was basically, when he was trying to go into Egypt to battle them, he was shamed and stood down and was sent away. And as he realized he couldn't defeat the Egyptian army, he had to go back home to his Syrian home in the south. But on his way there, he was so angry at his potential defeat and embarrassment in Egypt that he took his anger out on the people of God. In verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, That's a story we've looked at before from the 8th chapter of Daniel that says that he went in and looted and pillaged the temple and caused great havoc. And basically, he took it out on the people of God because he was angry at his loss. And sometimes... Uh, The people that matter most to us or people that we should care deeply for, we have an anger at other issues in life. Maybe anger about how our life has turned out or how we were treated in the past and it's deep within a bitter root has come and we lash it out on other people. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's someone else special to us that they are the recipients of our misplaced anger. The living God wants to set you free from that tendency to act out and to bring retribution to other people and wants to take your anger from you this morning. Unlike Antiochus Epiphanes, he wants us to walk in freedom from our tendency toward anger and bitterness. Well, the story does end on a more positive note because number three on your outline, it shows that that we must imitate the actions of faithful believers. My favorite verse in this passage is verse 32, and it gives us the principle about A under number 3, that we must learn to know God deeply. Verse 32 says, With flattery he will corrupt those who violated the covenant. This is, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes. But then it says this, But the people who know their God will resist him firmly. Are you a person that knows their God? We've got to quit being men and women that know data about God, but we have to personally get to know who God is. This was a reference to the Jews that faithfully resisted and knew God in a personal way. We have the privilege of getting to know God personally through a relationship with Christ and continuing that relationship by spending time with the Lord and growing in our knowledge of Him, much like the Apostle Paul said when he said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. So know their God and be, under number three, another action of faithful believers that we must learn to practice wisdom. It says in verse 33 that those who are wise will instruct many. And we must, the, the word wisdom is basically, it means thinking God's way, and it moves beyond what is right and wrong into not just principles, but taking those principles into everyday life. Oftentimes we find a moral dilemma where we're not sure, is this right? Should I watch this? Should I go here? Should I do this? And we can't seem to find a chapter and verse to tell us what to do and not to do. That's when wise people move forward. It's because a wise person learns to think God's way and to take the principles of truth from Scripture and act out in wisdom. And it is the wise here that are commended. And finally, in verse 35, it says, some of the wise will stumble. And it's probably, the word stumble is is not so much a reference to failure, but likely to trials. So that they may be refined and purified and made spotless until the time of the end 
for it will still come at the appointed time. Maybe you've been stumbling because of trials in your life and you're wondering what is going on. Well, note, just like the people of God of all, the living God is seeking to refine you. He's wanting to do a deeper work in your life. And so, see, uh, under number three, we must learn to embrace the training of suffering. You know, God's vantage point has so much for us to learn today. And as we consider this great passage, I'd like us to take a moment and bow together. And as we're bowed before him, and as we're entering into a time of response, have you come to the place in your life where you've personally trusted Christ alone for salvation? Have you entered into that relationship of faith in Christ? Maybe you've been through a time of suffering in your life that's rather than moved you forward in your walk with Christ, it's set you so much backward, and now the living God is, is knocking on your heart's door today saying, learn the lessons of being refined through suffering. Living God, we thank you for the gospel of Christ and how it sets us free from the weight of sin and from death, and we pray that you would draw people to your truth and open up hearts this day. It's in Christ's wonderful name we pray. Amen. You know, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if you're here today and you've never entered into that personal relationship with Christ where you've said, Lord, I believe in you. I place my faith in you alone. We want to give you a chance to do that today. So when we stand and sing in a moment, if that's you, you'd like to receive Christ into your life. You simply come forward and say, I'd like to pray that prayer. I'd like to know Christ personally. As we stand today, you come as the Lord leads.